I'd like to direct your attention to the second commandment. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verses 8 through 10. Today we're going to focus our attention primarily upon verse 9, next Lord's Day upon verse 8, and turning things around a little bit. And then the two Lord's Days following that, we will be looking to, to try to understand how the second commandment applies specifically to issues related to worship. We're going to be talking about the principle that underlies this commandment, the principle known as the regulative principle of worship. And so for the next four weeks, we uh, have our work cut out for us as we look at these, at these principles. Human invention is a, indeed a wonderful gift from God that we are to use in all areas of life except one, worship. We are not to bring human invention, human innovation into worship. And that is what the second commandment teaches, in effect. There's no room for that at all when it comes to divine worship. In fact, According to this commandment, we are expressly forbidden to bring human man-made images into the city of the living God, into the new Jerusalem, into the church of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, we are no more at liberty to worship the Lord God in a new and different way than we are to worship a new and different God. Both are equally condemned. The first commandment condemns worshiping any other God. The second commandment condemns worshiping the one true living God. By any means, he's not appointed. He alone, as the living God, can determine how he is to be worshipped. Thomas Watson has made this particular statement. In the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In the second commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. These are two distinct and separate commandments. They are not the same commandment. They are saying two different things. In other words, in the first commandment, children, listen now. In the first commandment, God is making it very clear who you are to worship. Who are are you to worship? Only God. In the second commandment, children, God is saying how you are to worship God. How does God want us to worship Him? Does He want us to bring images that we have made, images that we have created into the place of worship? Absolutely not. We are to worship Him as He has authorized. And that is the only way we can worship Him. 
<clears throat> As God spoke all of these words that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 5 from Mount Sinai, from the midst of the smoke, you'll remember, from the lightning, from the thunder, the earthquaking, the Lord did not declare, worship me in the way that makes you feel good. He didn't say, worship me in the way that inspires you. He did not declare, it doesn't matter how you worship me as long as you have good intentions and you're sincere about what you bring to me. Nor did the Lord command, worship me in a way that will entertain and attract more people into the congregation. To our shame, the Church of Jesus Christ is largely motivated by those kinds of principles rather than by biblical principles today. We need to realize afresh and anew that it is not the person who is standing behind the pulpit at that particular point in the worship service who is worshiping while the rest of you are the audience, but rather it is all of us who are worshiping God and God himself is the audience who is receiving the praise and the glory and the worship of his people. And God on that last day will not say, how many people, Pastor Price, did you make feel good through your sermons? I will not have to answer to that kind of a subjective standard. Or he won't say to the elders of this church, how many people did you attract? into your congregation by, by innovative means, they will have to answer before God on the basis of how faithful they were to what God revealed in His Word. And so a heavy responsibility, dear ones, is placed upon elders in this regard. A heavy responsibility is placed upon you, the members of Christ's church, to keep us accountable should we ever stray in any area? That's why it's so important that we have a congregation that knows the truth. Not simply the elders, not simply the pastor, but all of God's people who are growing in the knowledge of the truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, <clears throat> There are really two separate commands here in this second commandment. So within the second commandment, there are really two separate commands that I would like for us to focus our attention upon. The first command we find in verse 8. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. You're not to make for yourself any graven image of God. No representations of God, whether you, whether those representations be of, of some angelic or heavenly being, of some uh, of stars, of sun, of moon, 
You're not to make representations of God of anything upon the earth, whether beast or that flies above the earth, a bird. You're not to make any representations of God as it pertains to anything in the seas. Because the nations of that time made representations, pictures, statues, portraits of their gods. They confined them to these kinds of images. But God says, first of all, you're not to do so with me because I cannot be confined to a picture. To try to limit me to a picture is to change my glory for I am infinite and without limitations. I cannot be bound to a picture or statue. That's the part we'll be focusing upon next Lord's Day. The second commandment in this second commandment, part two in the second commandment, if you will, is a command which God says, you shall not worship me by means of any man-made image. Not only are you not to make any representation of me, but you're not to worship by means of any man-made image, whether it's a representation of God or whether it's just any kind of man-made uh, replica or a relic or image that you might bring into the worship service. That can be not only something uh, that you can hold in your hand, but it could be uh, an act, a gesture. It can be thoughts in your mind, or it can be something you hold in your hand. You're not to bring them into the worship service to worship me thereby. That's what the second part of this second commandment teaches. <clears throat> so as we look at the substance of the sermon today, I'd like to point out where I'm headed. I'm going to be essentially looking at the vain arguments that men offer with regard to why they bring what they bring into the worship service and seeking to look at this particular commandment to show that they are all unacceptable. We're not going to be going through ex with exhaustive detail. Part of what we're going to be doing in not only in the next four weeks but in many weeks to come is applying this principle to various aspects of worship, to singing, to preaching, to we've done so with praying, uh, to your listening and how you are to worship God. What does God say not only about what I do as the minister or what an elder does, but what does God say your responsibility? How are you to worship God? And so these are many, there are many, many applications that we will be focusing on in the next uh, several weeks. But let's focus now our attention upon verse 9. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, God says. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. 
You're not to bow down in any religious sense, nor serve them by giving any religious thoughts, any reverence, any words, any deeds, anything that may be of mere human invention or innovation. Once again, let me caution you not to quickly dismiss what God commands herein simply because you have not gone out and recently bowed down to some idol. Maybe you've never bowed down to an idol. But that is not what God is saying. God is not in the second commandment forbidding Israel to worship false gods. That's forbidden in the first commandment. So the Lord is not prohibiting them in this particular commandment to worship Baal or Ra or Ashtaroth or Dagon or Marduk or Moloch or any of the false gods that were present in the world at that time. As I've already said, let me simply re-emphasize this. There is a difference between the first and second commandment. All the other false gods of the nations have been expressly prohibited when God says, You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is not simply restating or repeating in different words the first commandment. This is a separate commandment with a different concern than the false gods of the pagan nations. The Romish church distinguishes between worship, that is, in Latin, latria, worship that belongs to God alone and Dulia, which is reverence or respect, which they believe belongs to saints, to relics, to images. And they make that distinction that it is unacceptable to bow down with the sense of latria, to worship, but it is acceptable to show reverence respect for the images and the and the uh, saints and the relics of the church but dear ones look at verse 9 what verse 9 expressly condemns is bowing down latria worship and service dulia reverence respect that would be paid to the saints to relics to images. This verse not only forbids all inward reverence shown to all religious relics not authorized by God, but also forbids all outward acts of devotion or service. Whether bowing, whether bending the knee, whether kissing the relic or image, as in Hosea chapter 13. Look at Hosea 13, verses 2 through 3. There God's judgment comes upon Israel 
the northern tribe, the house of Israel. Those ten tribes that were separated with Rehoboam, or I'm sorry, with Jeroboam, the two remaining with Rehoboam. In verse 2, says, Now they sin more and more, the people of Israel, and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill, all of it is of the work of craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. The calves that had been established as the point of contact when Jeroboam separated from Judah, you will remember that they established a modified, an alternative form to true worship of God in Jerusalem. Jeroboam established, and we'll talk more about this in a few moments, but he established uh, these calves to be representations of Jehovah, of God. And this formed their worship. But apparently, not only did they bow down to them, but they as well kissed them. Here, the second commandment would as well condemn all kinds of, of gestures of reverence shown to relics, statues, that God does not authorize in his word. <clears throat> all religious acts, dear ones, of devotion and worship must have divine warrant in Scripture for God's people to practice them. Otherwise, we place ourselves upon the same line, if you will, the same continuum with the Romish church. You see, the Romish church believes that you do not need divine warrant to practice certain religious activities or ceremonies or rituals or to have certain relics or images. You don't need divine authority. Silence in Scripture for the Romish church implies that it's fine to implement. If God doesn't expressly condemn it, then it is permissible. And if we allow even anything into our worship service, that does not have divine warrant, we place ourselves on the same line as the Romish church. It's pretty difficult, even though we may be in our judgment at different extremes of that line, it's pretty difficult on the basis of principle to criticize or to condemn what Rome does just because they've, they've drifted down that slippery slope a little further than we have. The only way that we can bring God's Word to anyone is if we are seeking to faithfully apply that and all that comes into the worship of God is free of human innovation, human images, human invention. And when that's the principle we're operating from, then we can say, thus says the Lord. We can speak with the authority of God. <clears throat> I 
For example, just to try and clarify and illustrate this, we do have warrant when we observe the Lord's Supper. And it's not simply a meaningless ceremony that I go through when I break the bread because it speaks of Christ as he instituted the Lord's Supper, he broke the bread. And Paul says the bread which we break is it not the body of Christ. Speaks of in the, in the words of institution that that is to be a, a symbolic act that we who serve as Christ's ministers are to continue to exhibit. Exhibits the fact that Christ was broken for us. But if I stand before you and I cross myself, I have no divine warrant to cross myself. There's nothing in Scripture that, that gives me God's authorization to do that. That's a symbolic act that we cannot find in Scripture. I cannot use that, therefore. Even if I thought that it was uh, a good idea which I don't, but even if I did, even if I thought that it, that it might help people's uh, devotion to be able to visualize that cross in some manner, because it doesn't have God's authorization, I cannot use it. Or to use another example, If I say that I am to break the bread which has authorization, which speaks of Christ's body being broken, his blood was spilt, if I spill the cup as an emblem of Christ's blood being shed and spilled for us, if I do not have the authorization from God's word, even if it does accurately portray what occurred, I still cannot do that. Even when I bless the congregation at the end of the service, if God did not authorize my lifting up of my hands to bless the congregation, I could not do so. But in blessing the congregation in that manner, God says the hands are lifted and they go up over the congregation, as it were, since God himself is in our midst. And since I'm not going to go person by person to place my hands upon you with God's blessing, the lifted hands over the whole congregation means that God's hand is being placed upon you. That's the symbolic act. His name is being placed upon you. And His blessing goes with you. But we have divine warrant to do so. So God specifically commands his people by the second commandment not to add to nor take away anything from the word which he has given for worship. Silence in scripture concerning a gesture, a word, a ceremony, or a practice 
of religious worship means it cannot be used in worship. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12 very quickly. In the context of worshiping God in the ways that the heathen nations worship God, we find these words, Deuteronomy 12:29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire, notice, after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Not who did they serve, but in which way did they serve? How did they worship? What manner did they worship God, their gods? How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. God says, be careful. Take heed that you don't do that. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way as the heathen nations. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. In other words, what God is saying, if you're going to pick and choose how you're going to emulate man-made invention and worship, then you might as well go all the way. They even offer their, to show their devotion, they even offer their children. Notice what he says in verse 32, however. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. You are not only forbidden, dear ones, from subtracting from what God specifically com commands to be in worship, but you are forbidden from adding to what God specifically commands. Adding to or subtracting from. Listen to the vain arguments of men. You've probably heard these before. I certainly have. Uh, with regard to why certain things ought to be allowed in, in worship, I've not uh, simply heard them from Roman Catholics either. For example, this argument. I don't worship the image or the picture or the banner that's upon the wall. I worship what the image or picture or banner represents. Or this one. This picture or object is only an aid to help me clearly focus my attention or worship on the Lord. It's just a help. It's just an aid to assist me. That's all it is. Or maybe you've heard this one. I honor... The image, show respect for the image, but I reserve all real worship for God alone. I show reverence for the image because of what it represents, but I worship God alone. Or finally, this one actually comes from John of Damascus, who lived uh, between 675 and 749. He said, 
And this is, to a large degree, what Roman Catholic theology and practice is built upon in the whole area of symbols in worship. What a book is to the literate, that an image is to the illiterate. The image speaks to the sight as words to the ear. It brings us understanding. That is, the image brings us understanding. Since there were many illiterate people in those days, for the sake of maybe even good intentions, for the sake of expediency, images by some may have been brought into the into the uh, worship service. Pictures of Christ, the crucifix, Christ hanging upon the cross. Pictures, uh, symbols of saints, stained glass windows, various kinds of symbols that God had not authorized and commanded in order to, in their minds perhaps, to teach the illiterate, to give them understanding as to the truths of God. But do they have the divine warrant to do so? Calvin, in his sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, just a brief portion of that sermon, with regard to this idea of... of bringing into the worship service various symbols on the basis of good intentions. He says this, At the same time, we also see to what end our good intentions serve. For if there is anything which men are able to excuse in themselves, which they attempt to do so well, it is their proclivity to conceive of idols. And why do men do it except to worship God? to be incited to a greater devotion and to have greater certainty that God will grant their requests. Such are they, then, who attempt to hide behind this pretext of good intentions. But on the contrary, we see that God despises them. We see that he pronounces a horrible sentence of condemnation on all who allow themselves to be governed by their own opinion. They would say, of course, and such is the case, that they mean to worship God. But how? He does not at all accept such worship. Rather, he despises it and considers it detestable, and with good reason. For as we have previously shown, his majesty is reduced to a travesty when we attempt to represent him by means of any visible image. Thus we are instructed in this passage not to undertake what might seem good to us. And above all, when it is a matter of worshiping God, we are not to give any attention whatever to our imagination. But we are to follow in all simplicity what he has ordained by his word without adding anything to it at all. In 
spite of all of the good intentions that people may have. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, note what God says about those who would seek to worship Him by means of, of images. Look at what He says, verses 9 and 10. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. In spite of the good intentions that people may have in introducing various relics, forms, ceremonies into worship service, God says, they hate me. That's pretty strong language. God says they hate me. I think that's very similar as it says in Proverbs 13.24. You'll remember this passage, I'm sure. Children uh, oftentimes don't appreciate this, uh, this passage in Proverbs, but uh, as we've all learned, it has uh, much grace that it communicates and help for us. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. No matter how much a parent may say, I can't spank my child because I love them too much, God says, the problem is you don't love your child at all. You hate your child. Now, are we going to believe what a parent says, with all of the good intentions, are we going to believe what God says? God says, if you do not discipline and, and apply the rod to your children when they need it, and if you do not do so promptly, you do not love them, but you hate them, you're only thinking, as it were, you're only thinking of yourself at that point. You're not thinking of the child at all. You're thinking of how difficult it is, how hard it is to persevere. You're thinking, what will my child think of me? You're not thinking of what God says. You're not acting in obedience to God at that point. And the same thing is true in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The person who invents, or the church that invents, ceremonies and images to help and aid their devotion to God. God says, they do not love me. They hate me. Because I will be worshipped in the way that I command, not in the way that seems best to you. You know, it's interesting, those four arguments that I mentioned earlier, we'll go through them very quickly again, but they're the exact same arguments that rank pagans use with regard to their form of worship. Do you think 
take the first one. I don't worship the image or the picture. I worship what the image or picture represents. Do you actually think that when a pagan makes an idol, that they think that that image itself is the god? Of course not. They carved it out of wood or stone. They believe that it represents some object behind it. Or the second one, this picture or object is only an aid to help me more clearly focus my attention on my God. Well, if they don't believe that's actually their God, then they're, what they're saying is that this just helps me visualize or focus my, my faith upon. Since I can't see the God that I worship, this helps me to focus my attention. I know that, thirdly, I know that it's not this, this object here that deserves my worship, but it's the God that this object represents. So I'm, just, I'm not uh, intending to show this particular stone, piece of stone or wood worship, but the God that it represents. Or finally, we learn, we're taught by the various objects of worship or religious uh, uh, worship. We're taught by them. And so uh, you go through all the, the uh, Roman uh, uh, or Greek mythologies and, and all of the pictures that they have to portray uh, their gods becoming men and things like that. It's, it's a way to teach and instruct. A pedagogical tool. So, my point is, in principle, how are we, as those who profess to be Christians, when we use the same arguments any different than the pagans? We're not. We must have a totally, completely different view. We cannot worship God by means of any human invention. You see, this is the very thing that uh, Israel uh, was in trouble over. You remember in Exodus 32, we read that earlier. Let's just turn there very quickly. Exodus 32, back to the account of the golden calves, or calf that was made. As you read through this account, won't take the time to do so, but it was not the intention of the people of Israel to form a new God in which to worship. They were not, strictly speaking, violating the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They were rather violating very strictly the second commandment because they were seeking to worship Jehovah by means of a, an image, a calf. Because as you look at verse 5, notice what Aaron says. And so when Aaron saw it, this image, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah. They had not turned their backs, strictly speaking, upon Jehovah God. They had simply erected an image of their own invention by which to worship God. 
And that's why God condemned them. That's why God judged them. Man-made invention brought into worship. We find the same thing happening with regard to Jeroboam and how he, he introduced the, the calf worship after the separation of the kingdoms between Israel and Judah. In order to keep the people in Israel loyal to himself, he formed this modified view of the worship of Jehovah. He formed his own priesthood so that the people would not be continuously going down to Jerusalem in Judah to worship God and thereby eventually become disloyal to him. And so again, we find this was very clearly from the, from the context from the appropriate passages, if you look at 1 Kings, we won't look there, but if on your own, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, you can see very clearly that that was the intention. And each of the kings, after Jeroboam, followed in his path until we finally come to Ahab. Turn with me to 1 Kings 16.29. And you'll see where this form of idolatry where we begin worshiping God by a means which he has not commanded where it ultimately leads. 1 Kings 16.29 In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab had now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nabat. What does he mean by that? Well, as if it was trivial simply to follow the calf worship that Jeroboam had introduced and worshiping the one true living God by means of images that God had not ordained, as if that was a trivial thing, notice, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him, as if it was trivial to implement images by which to worship God. He began serving other gods. You see, that's the line that's the direction when we begin to worship God by a means which he has not commanded. It heads us in the direction of serving a God of our own imagination. A God that has not revealed himself in such a way in the scriptures. And we end up worshiping a false God and not the one true living God. let me ask you, would this use of images have been any more acceptable if Jeroboam had used the form of a lamb instead of a calf, or a lion, or a dove? 
or the form of, a, uh, of an old man with gray hair, white hair. Painted on the Sistine Chapel is a representation of God in human form giving life to Adam. Is that acceptable? not any more acceptable than the calf worship because it's worshiping God by a means by which he has not ordained any visible representation of the invisible God which man himself invents to use in worship is here prohibited in the second commandment this is extremely serious business, as you see in Deuteronomy 5, where God brings blessing upon those who love him by worshiping him in the way that he has ordained. And he brings curses to the third to the fourth generation of those who hate him by worshiping him in a means by which he has not ordained and appointed. You see... What's condemned here is all, according to Colossians 2.23, all will worship. All worship that we ourselves appoint. In John chapter 4, dear ones, Jesus, speaking to the woman by the well there in Samaria, becomes involved in a conversation. She wants to, to, to bring the conversation around the, the fact that you worship in Jerusalem, we worship here on this mount, Mount Gerizim. She wants to talk about the forms of worship. The Lord Jesus brings her to the place in John chapter 4, and he says to her, verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The oracles, the revelation of God is through the Jews. God has committed them to the Jews. They know what God has said with regard to worship. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Notice now, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. He'll tell us how to worship God. He'll tell us what's right, what's appropriate. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says, even as God, I think this is what the point that Christ is making, even as God appointed the specific forms of worship in the Old Testament, even so, now I as the Messiah as the Christ, the Anointed One, a point for New Covenant worship, those specific forms. Nothing's changed 
The second commandment hasn't changed. In the Old Testament, don't you think that they had to worship God in spirit and in truth? Otherwise, their worship would be vain? Of course. They couldn't simply go through the motions. They couldn't do whatever they wanted to do. And so the truth is the same today. We must worship God in spirit with our whole being, not simply according to forms. But we must worship the Lord God in truth as well as he has revealed himself. This is the kind of worship that it says here. The Father is seeking such kind of worshipers. He's looking for these kinds of worshipers who worship him in this manner, in spirit and in truth. Not simply in spirit, who are very devoted to God and doing their own thing as to forms, nor those who are committed only to forms, worshiping God in truth but those who worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus made that very clear in Matthew chapter 15 when he said, hypocrites, speaking to the Jews and the Pharisees, hypocrites, this is verses 7 through 9, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's vanity. It's emptiness. It's futility. What they are performing. Because I have not sanctioned it. And because they are not doing so with their whole heart. Dear ones, we know that the old covenant worship has passed away. The book of Hebrews certainly makes that very clear. The temple, Jerusalem, the priesthood, those things have been done away with. But we're left with the question, how are we to worship God? The second commandment applies to us today as much as it applied to God's people then. And the same thing is true. We must look to the New Testament. We must look to Christ and the apostles to teach us how we are to worship God. And by God's grace, not to step outside those bounds. God, keep us from a kind of self-righteousness that would look down our noses at others. For God knows our own hearts how difficult it is, even if we follow the right forms, to worship God with our whole hearts. And if there is self-righteousness and pride in our lives, God will no more receive our worship than the worship of those who are not following in our judgment according to the biblical standards, the right forms. God's judgment rests upon us as well. I want to just conclude by drawing your attention to the fact because that is true. Because our worship is that of spirit as well as to form. 
and in both are commanded by God. We cannot worship as we believe we should. Let us always remember that Jesus Christ is our mediator. That Jesus Christ is the one who makes our worship acceptable before Him. Without Him interceding for us, without Him and His sacrifice upon the cross, our worship, dear ones, would be totally unacceptable. Our very best efforts, our most, uh, uh, our greatest sincerity of heart toward God, as well as following the right forms, would be totally unacceptable before God if Jesus Christ was not at the right hand of God interceding for us even now. It says in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 2, Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. His merit, His righteousness, dear ones, is sufficient. Again, whether we're talking about salvation, doctrines of salvation, or we're talking about doctrines related to worship. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Jesus Christ is our merit. We are only acceptable before God on, his, on the basis of His death and His resurrection. Cast yourselves upon Him, dear ones, as you worship the Lord in spirit and truth. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.